This evening's scripture comes from Judges chapter 16, verses 28 through 31. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once. O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. Welcome to Grace Downtown. Actually, Andrew is going to stay up here and Melissa is going to join him because um, before we jump into the sermon tonight, we have a little bit of family business, a couple things that we're going to do first, a couple of folks we're going to pray for. And the first one is Andrew and Melissa, and Andrew's going to give us an update on the way the Lord is leading his family. So take it away. All right. Hello. My name is Andrew. This is my wife, Melissa. Uh, for those of you who do not know us, uh, this announcement is going to be very awkward. For those of you who do know us, this announcement will also be awkward. But at least you'll have some context for what's going on. Um, to keep a long story short, my wife and I have recently come to Presbyterian convictions concerning infant baptism. Uh, because of my desire to pursue vocational ministry, to be a pastor, um, in the context that aligns with these new views, with these newfound convictions, uh, we will begin searching for a Presbyterian congregation to join come sometime mid-August. Uh, because it is our desire to leave well, uh, Jason asked us to give this announcement to the whole congregation so that there isn't any question around the reasoning for our leaving. Uh, Grace has been home to both of us for over a decade, uh, and we want to clearly communicate both that we love this congregation dearly um, and that there is no animosity in our leaving. Uh, we understand that some of you may have questions for us, and we invite you to talk with us if that is the case. We'll be around for a few more weeks. Uh, thanks. That's it. <laughs> Jason? So for those of you that don't know, Andrew is one of our elders in training. He has preached here downtown. Melissa is our children's coordinator uh, for our downtown kids. And Andrew has been a part of things since the beginning of Grace Downtown. Melissa, her entire adult life as well, really from the beginning as well. And so it, it's really, they've been part of the family um, in many, many ways and given up so, so much for the sake of the gospel in this church. And um, I want us to send them well and pray for them. Um, as part of our family. And really, they're going to stay part of the family. Um, we will continue to partner with them and whatever church they choose to be a part of uh, as a partnership in the gospel. Uh, to be clear, if it's not clear, we did not ask them to leave. Um, they're, they're leaving to pursue the way they feel like the Lord is calling them. So we were concerned that it was like Jason came back from sabbatical and fired everyone. That is not the case. So um, we are continuing in our series through the book of Judges. As you heard Andrew's scripture reading tonight, the story of Samson, uh, maybe a story you're familiar with if you grew up in the church and going to Sunday school. So if you would pray for me now, 
can all come up and lay hands. No, I'm just kidding. But if you would, if you would, there's a reason that as we get up here to preach, we say, would you pray with me and for me? It's because as pastors, we want to admit uh, in humility that we need the Lord to speak. And you all need his words tonight. We need his words. So would you join me and pray with me and for me that that would take place? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak. God, thank you for the mercy and grace of your word, of your truth. Jesus, thank you that you say you are the word, you are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. Father, may we cling to you tonight because of all you've done for us. May we trust in you tonight. May you speak the words that you need each of us to hear. God, you know what is on the heart of each man, woman, and child here tonight, and you know exactly what they need to hear. And Spirit, I pray that you would speak more accurately, more specifically, and more powerfully than I can with my human words. In Jesus' name, amen. What do you need strength for tonight? What do you need strength for as you sit here tonight? There are different kinds of strength and there are different kinds of difficulties. But as we begin tonight, have on your mind, what what do you need strength for right here, right now? Maybe it's something you're facing that's new. Maybe it's something that you're facing this week or as the semester is about to begin. Maybe it's something new as you move to town or as you're moving away. Maybe it's something chronic that you've needed strength for for a long time. Maybe you've cried out to God and you don't feel like you've received the strength that you need. Maybe you see a task in front of you or a relational conflict or a struggle or an area of sin and you're just not sure how you're going to overcome it. Where do you need strength tonight? Today we read the story of Samson. This story of Samson is a classic hero's journey. We can follow it as if it was great literature or a great movie, a great kid's story. Like all good stories, it sucks us in. There's a reason if you grew up in the church that you know the story of Samson. It just pulls us in with its story arc and the hero's journey. We can start to see as we read through it, just like all the other judges we've read, we can fortunately and unfortunately start to see ourselves in it. But as we get down into the details of this story, as we learn about the parts that we didn't learn in Sunday school, we will see that there is an outside force at work in the story of Samson. Because just like all other stories, Samson isn't just the story of Samson. It's the story of the God who is writing a story with Samson's life. He's writing a story in scripture and he's writing a story in your life and in my life. So we're going to begin his story. We're going to look at a little bit of, of how he was raised. We're going to skip pretty quickly through most of his adult life, hit on some key points, and then we're going to see what God is doing through this hero's journey. So start with me in chapter 13, verse 1. Some of the scripture will be up here on the screen, some won't, but if you would open your Bibles with me to Judges 13. And we find in verse 1, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines 
for 40 years. Once again, we have another generation that does not know God. We have seen this pattern over and over again in scripture. We see it with Moses' generation. We see it with Joshua's generation. We see it time and time again in Judges, where it looks like there's a hero. It looks like there's faithfulness. There looks like a generation that does the right thing. And then their kids don't know God. We're going to pause right here for a little sidebar on biblical parenting because we can't go through judges without seeing this happen over and over and over again. And we have to ask the question, what in the world is going on? How do these generations, these men and women do great things and then their kids don't know God? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, God tells his people as he's giving them the law, as he's giving them the Ten Commandments, as he's telling them the kind of people that he needs them to be to show his holiness, to accomplish his purposes, to defeat his enemies. In Deuteronomy 6, we are told that they are to write God's law two places. They're to write God's law on their doorposts and on their hearts. They're told to write it on the doorposts and their hearts. The doorpost thing they took literally. Literally. I have a picture here from uh, the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. My wife and I uh, were able to go there while I was on sabbatical, just the two of us. Uh, We love museums and art. There was lots to see there. And we got to go to the Holocaust Museum. Unbelievable. Unbelievable artifacts, unbelievable storytelling. It was a very moving experience. On it, they had replicated a brick wall like you would have seen in Warsaw, in Poland, during the time of the Holocaust. But this right here, this is a real little plaque or display, and inside of it is the words of the law. They found this in a brick wall in someone's house who was carried off to a concentration camp. This is literally God's law put on the doorpost, put on the walls of this Jewish person's house. So God's people did this in the Old Testament and they did it all the way up into the last century and some are still doing it today. Taking it very literally to put God's law on their doorposts because the idea of Deuteronomy 6 is that you would put God's law everywhere so you would constantly be reminded of it. But that's only one part of the story. If you remember, they were supposed to write it two places. And the second place was their hearts. Their hearts. There is a difference between putting God's law on your wall and putting it on your heart. By way of example, I thought of this illustration this week as I was preparing my kids' vegetables. I was steaming vegetables, you know, in the steamed vegetable bag. And there's that one mix that has the peas in it you save it till the end, right? You eat it last of all your veggies, at least I do. I was preparing it for the kids. I don't like peas at all. Some of our kids like peas, some do not like peas. So I'm preparing the veggies and I'd scooped all the veggies out onto their plates. And then I went to take my plate to the table and I hadn't put any veggies on there, obviously because of the peas. And I thought in that moment, I can't make my kids eat these peas if I'm not willing to eat peas. 
There is a difference between making your kids eat peas and putting a sign on your wall that says, we love vegetables in this home and eating peas for yourself. And your kids watching you eat vegetables for yourself. And then you say, hey kids, it's important to eat your vegetables, just like me. Mm, Grin and bear it. There's a difference between putting God's law on your doorposts and putting it on your heart. I think what we see generation after generation into the book of Judges is people that are putting God's law on their doorposts, but it's not written on their heart. So they fail to pass it on to their kids. Parenting is awesome and ridiculously hard. Sometimes you just don't want to eat peas. Sometimes you don't want to feed your kids peas because you don't want to hear it, that they don't want to eat the peas. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. It's challenging, but there's so much joy in it and there's so much purpose in what God is trying to do in our homes and in our kids' lives. Parents, we can give our kids a good church. We can give them the law on the doorposts of our house. We can give them biblical community to come alongside of us. We can give them theologically accurate children's Bibles on their bookshelf. We can have the best children's ministry in America. But if God's law, if God's glory, if the gospel and the good news is not written on our hearts, it's not going to be important to them either. The Bible serves as a warning that we would be people of the gospel, people of the good news in word and deed, in our homes, in the church, in our community, to the ends of the earth. Let's continue on the story of Samson. Read with me in chapter 13. You'll see a summary up here of what we're going to hit. We'll go much more quickly. I'm not going to have sidebars for all of these on different issues. We're going to go a lot faster now. But read with me starting in verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and you have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God. It was very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. If we follow along in the story, his father then prays that the angel would come and confirm the message to him as the father. The angel comes and confirms the message to him. And this should all sound very familiar. It is precisely like the story of Mary and Joseph. The angel comes and tells Mary what's about to happen. The angel comes and tells Joseph what's about to happen. They get together and they see God's purpose, God's call on their life. Then read with me verse 25 of chapter 13. Verse 25 of chapter 13. 
And the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him in Manasseh between Zoro and Ashtal. The spirit of the Lord is moving in this little child. He grew up, he was blessed, his parents blessed him, and the spirit of the Lord was with this child, Samson, as a kid. This also sounds like Luke 2.52 that gives us the story of Jesus' childhood in one sentence. And it's very similar to what we read here about Samson. If we skip ahead in tonight's scripture reading and we go to the point where we find Samson and Delilah in the children's Bible, and then next page of the children's Bible is this very strong Samson pushing over the pillars and the pillars coming down and the roof coming in and kills God's enemy and everyone claps and cheers and everyone gets a snack and goes home. But there's more. There's more to the story. Look with me in chapter 14. Samson then demands a Philistine wife. He sees a Philistine woman, the people that were God's enemies over and over and over again. He sees a Philistine wife. She is attractive to his eyes and she t- he tells his parents, go get that woman for me. This is a common biblical motif. A man of God seeing what looks good to his eyes and marrying a woman from a tribe outside of God's people and marrying a woman from a pagan culture. And it always goes south in the Old Testament. Judges 14 verse 4, his father and his mother did not know that this wish of his was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. We're going to pause on this verse. Look, make sure it's in front of you. Judges 14, verse 4, so you know I'm not making this up. This verse is one of the most confusing verses in the whole Bible and definitely the most confusing verse in Judges. It's confusing for two reasons. The first one is, who's the he? Who's the he? We have to determine who the he is so we know if Samson is carrying out his will or God's will. It's hard for us as we read the sentence to know who the he is. This is one of those opportunities when we go back to the original language, the Hebrew in which it was written, it becomes very easy. And in the Hebrew, it is very clear that the he is God. Clears it right up, right? Not really. It just makes it more confounding. So here's what we're reading. His father and mother did not know that his desire for this woman was from the Lord because the Lord was seeking an opportunity to destroy the Philistines. So we're being told here that the Lord is prompting Samson to marry this Philistine woman so that the Lord through Samson and his mighty strength and his spirit rushing on him can defeat the Philistines who had been against God's people for decades. This should scramble our brain. What is going on here? This verse, first off, is confusing. If this is part of God's plan, why didn't his parents, who seem to be God-fearing people, understand what's going on? It seems really strange that normally this is a bad arrangement in scripture, but it looks like God is behind it and a part of it. Also, Samson is being led by the pleasure of his eyes. So it's confusing. 
but it also is comforting. It's also comforting because when we get to the end of Samson's story, we need to take great comfort in the fact that a guy like Samson could be a part of God's plan because it means a guy like me could be a part of God's plan. Let's continue on. I'm going to read this because it's weird. Chapter 14, verses 5 through 7. I'm going to start in verse 5 of chapter 14. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah, and behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. You know, the last time you tore a young goat. It's like that. He tore a young goat. Or like you tear a young goat, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. What in the world? The spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson. He rips a lion apart. Verses 8 and 9. After some days, he returned to take her, this woman, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and he went on eating it as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of a lion. These verses are completely insignificant, but they're fascinating. Can you picture this guy? It's giving us a picture of nothing else of who this Samson guy was. To summarize the rest of chapter 14, Samson's life is just one episode after another of him deceiving others and others deceiving him. His father-in-law, he, he basically is standing at a wedding. There's a couple here who shall remain nameless that got married like 12 hours ago, and they're here with us tonight. Imagine that they are standing there at the altar, and Pastor Joe is officiating the wedding, and Will says, hold on, I, oh, I said his name. Oh, sorry, Will. I wasn't really trying. Will says, sorry, Joe, I got to go to the restroom. And Will takes off and goes to the restroom. And while this is taking place, Logan's dad comes up and says to the best man, come on over. And the best man takes the groom's place. Will comes back from the bathroom and the best man is marrying the bride. And the father-in-law says, sorry, Charlie. That's exactly what happens to Samson. Samson is deceived. Will and Logan are married, just so you know. It happened. It was beautiful. We danced. It was official. It's great. Chapter 15. The deceit that had begun a chapter ago comes to fruition. Samson's wife is given to another, and he's deceived. As we continue on in chapter 15, we see... In verses 14 through 19, the spirit of God rush on him again and him conquer many enemies. In fact, he gives us this poem that says, the bodies that I have killed are now heaping up into piles. He is gloating in how he is destroying God's enemies. Then chapter 16, we come to three lies in a truth with Delilah. Delilah is paid 
by God's enemies to come and try to figure out why Samson has such great strength. And three times he lies to her, and the fourth he tells her the truth, and then he is handed over into the hands of God's enemies. When he is handed over to God's enemies, he is arrested, his hair is shaved off, thus losing momentarily the power of God. He is brought into the courts, and he is made a fool. They take all of his clothes off of him, and they humiliate him in unspeakable ways. And then once more, the Spirit of God rushes on him, and he literally brings down the house to his own death and the death of God's enemies. So what in the world are we supposed to learn from the story of Samson? While this is a classic hero's journey, it leaves us with questions. It becomes clear as we read this, as we read the whole story, not just the children's Bible parts, that God is at work, but it's hard to see through the lines. We're left unsatisfied once again with God's judge. We're left unsatisfied once again with God's hero. The one who, it looked like he had so much promise, in fact, his story is written like the story of Jesus is written. And the Spirit of God keeps rushing on him, yet it's still unsatisfying. So, this story has two, I'm so far behind, two major takeaways from this story. First, we have a warning and we have a promise. A warning and a promise. First, a warning. A warning. Remember that thing at the beginning when I asked, what do you need strength for? Have it in your mind right now. Where is the strength going to come from to accomplish that task? The warning of Samson is that strength does not come from normal human means. It does not come with anything we can muster up. Let's name a few things where we think strength comes from. We think strength comes from outward appearance. Outward appearance. And we cannot put our hope and find our strength in outward appearance. When we put our strength in outward appearance, what is kosher for our community or what is popular in our community for outside appearance changes. It depends on what culture you're in. It depends on what decade you're in. I want to prove it to you with this picture. Now, mom jeans are back. I don't know if anyone told you, but I want to do a little test. Up on the screen are two pictures of people in mom jeans. One is a Saturday Night Live skit and one is a real ad that was on the internet currently selling mom jeans. The right or the left? Which one is a Saturday Night Live skit and what, which one is a real advertisement? You can't tell, right? So congratulations if you're into the mom jean phase. You're wearing the same jeans my mom did in 1984. Now no one is listening to me. The ladies in the audience are not going to listen to the rest of my sermon. I put this up here for us to see the hilarity and the futility and thinking that our strength comes from outward appearance. I'm going to take that off the screen. It's super distracting. We think our strength comes from relationships. We think the strength of our relationships will give us strength. So we start to rely on other people and then we start to need people. And then we become dependent on other people and we stop turning to God. 
We think that strength comes from our religious conformity. Remember last week when we looked at the verse that told us that some things have a form of godliness, but they deny the power of God. We think strength will come from our awesome parenting, that we can just parent our way through it. We can listen to one more podcast and read one more book, and we can just power through the difficulties we face as parents or that our kids face. We think strength will come for the sacrifices we make for Jesus. So pointing back to last week, the deals and the vows we make from God, I'm going to do this so that God will give me strength over here. Maybe we think it's in our intellect, our education, our family of origin, our means that we have. Maybe it's in the things, the shiny things of this world. We think strength comes from these things. If we think we can muster up the strength we need to accomplish God's supernatural purposes, God's word leaves us a warning. When Samson trusted God, supernatural strength was given to him. When he did not, a rope could hold him down. And he could be deceived by his fiancé's father-in-law. We're also here, though, fortunately, given a promise. We're given a promise of power, of mercy, and of perfection. First, we're given a promise of power. Have in your mind again that thing that you need strength for. Now I'm going to add some things to your list. Some things that you need strength for. You need strength to start this semester well, whether it's your kids or you or the kids you're teaching. You need strength as this semester is approaching. Do you know that summer is now half over? teacher just winced. It's half over. How about raising your kids to fear and love God? How about making disciples? How about being back for, in Iowa for 12 weeks and then heading back to where you work in the Philippines? Where's home? I don't know. How about starting out a new marriage? in a culture that doesn't value marriage. How about trying to talk to a God you can't see? How about trying to remember that the God of the universe could actually love you and me when so many things have told us that we're unlovable? Where are we going to get strength for those things? We clearly need a power that is outside of us, yet living inside of us. That's what the Holy Spirit gives us because of the good news of the gospel. God taking residence in us, giving us strength that is outside of us, but with us all the time. Yet we do these things that have a form of godliness but are actually pushing down the power of God living inside of us. So many things that we go to for strength are pushing down and repressing the spirit and power of the living God. So many times in my life, I didn't have the strength, so I turned to my phone. 
I turn to entertainment. I turn to a good meal or a good drink or a good movie. And as I was doing those things, because I didn't think I'd have the strength or I feared I would have the strength, I was suppressing and pushing down the power of God in my life. But we have the promise of the spirit and the power of God because of the good news of the gospel. We can trust in God's power inside of us. We can say no to the distractions, the sin, the things of this world, the things that just numb us out. And we can let the power of God do its work. Second, we are given mercy. One commentator pointed out as I was studying for this sermon that Samson literally broke all 10 commandments. They failed to mention that in the children's Bibles. (laughs) Samson literally broke all 10 commandments. That's why the story of Samson and all the other judges leaves us wanting, leaves us unsatisfied, because they're supposed to point to the one that kept all 10. They're to point us to Jesus who kept God's law, who always did the will of the Father, who always showed the holiness and glory of God, the one that accomplished what you and I are supposed to do, but because of our sin and our suffering and the things of this world, we get off task. Through Jesus, we are offered mercy. We read a story like Samson and we think, is this glorifying violence, disobedience to God, lust of the flesh? No. It's showing us a holy God who can, will, and does use men and women just like you and me. If God can use Samson, he can use you. He can use me. That's what these stories of fallen individuals in scripture show us. No matter what you've done, no matter what's happened to you, Samson had plenty that he was guilty for and he had plenty of wrong done to him. If God can use him, God can use you. Lastly, we're given us the promise of perfection. Moses is our Moses, Samson. Samson's life is a tragedy. It's a hero's journey, but it's a tragedy. The things that he did, the things that happened to him, it's a tragedy. And those things that we need God's strength for, those things that we feel like we can't overcome, by God's grace, we can overcome them, but sometimes we don't. And we stumble and we fall and we struggle and we sin and we sit in church and commit that we're gonna be different this week. And then we go back and we see ourselves in the same rut. We need a promise of power. We need a promise of mercy, but we also need the promise of future perfection. That one day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will make everything right. He will make all of our efforts satisfied in him. He will make all of our efforts glorify him. We'll be fully satisfied in him, fully perfected in everything we do to others will be in his righteous perfection and for his glory. Would you stand with me? We close each service here at Grace Downtown on our feet. And the reason for that is that we want to 
dedicate ourselves to the Lord. Our hands and our feet, our minds, our bodies, our vocations, our schooling, our homes, our community. We want to commit them to him. We want to say that we want to now obey him with the words he has given us. Tonight I want to leave you with a good word, a benediction from God's word. And it's the promise of perfection. When I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. Thanks be to God. Go in grace and we'll see you soon.